May I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, what's the healthiest way to eat an entire cake? How many megapixels does your eye have? And can we use quantum entanglement to see what's going on inside a black hole? Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this week on The Naked Scientist, we're tackling the science questions that you have been sending in. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First off, let's meet the bright and very brainy people that we've assembled to answer your questions for you this week. Giles Yeo is from the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit. Hello, Giles. What did you get up to there? Uh, hi, good evening, Chris. Now, I'm a, a geneticist that studies obesity, and I also study the brain control of a food intake. So why I feel hungry when I feel hungry and how much I want to eat when I do. That's correct. Or why some people don't feel as full as others. And that might be why Georgia Mills fed us a very small mince pie before the programme. Microscopic. It it was microscopic, wasn't it? Uh, Andrew Ponson is a physicist. He's at University College London. You're effectively a cosmologist, Andrew. What does one of those do? Well, cosmology is all about studying space and time on the largest possible scale. So I like to think that, of course, contains everything because it's the universe so we just study everything there is so if you have any questions on life the universe and everything andrew is definitely your man now kirsten gopfrick is a recent naked scientist she produced the program you heard a couple of weeks ago but she's actually wearing quite a different hat today which is what kirsten well i'm back to the lab back to the department of physics at the university of cambridge uh, working on doing research on dna origami the art and the science of, of folding dna why folding would you want to use things. dna for that DNA is very, very stable. DNA is a material that nature has been optimising for billions and billions of years. And it just comes handy as a, as a building block as well. Thank you, Kirsten. Also with us is Roger Buckley, who is Professor of Ocular Medicine at the Vision and Eye Research Unit at Anglia Ruskin University. I guess it's fair to say then, Roger, you're going to be keeping an eye out for some visual type questions. I shall do my best. Good stuff. Now, before we head over to the science questions, earlier on this week, we asked our followers on social media to share their pet peeves about dodgy science that they've spotted in the movies. Now, this got a huge reaction. So before I share with you what some of the people said to us, what do you get particularly upset about? So, Kirsten, what, what, what floats your boat uh, oh, well, and, then, and then doesn't float your boat scientifically in the movies? Well, I watched Jurassic Park, well, a few years back now. And, and, you know, on the one hand, it really got me interested into science and into DNA. So I guess that was a good thing. I don't think everything is, is true that is said in there. But now that oh, this week... Oh, no, everything. Now I am disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> this week that, you know, they found this tail in a, in a fossil, actually, in this amber, uh, the dinosaur tail, you know? That's, yes, that's, that's true. This cool. week they did find a chunk of dinosaur tail in amber, didn't they? Um, Andrew, what about you? I think the thing that's really annoying is when techno babble gets you out of an impossible situation. And this seems to happen all the time in Star Trek. You're in an impossible situation. The aliens are about to destroy the Enterprise. And then all of a sudden, Captain Picard or whoever it is goes, oh, what about if we recalibrate the phase lock interlocks? And all of a sudden, it, it just solves everything. Right. And so you don't like that? Well, well I mean, you just say, well, what, what was the point of the rest of the story? <laughs> Well, someone did actually say in, in the feedback we had, they said, no, Star Trek is off the hook because they have inertial dampeners. So that, that, that's right. okay. Well, that, that obviously solves everything. Yeah. Giles? 
I actually had a pet peeve that has suddenly become unpeeved. My biggest pet peeve was when X-Files used to be out way back when. And the biggest thing was they used to be able to sequence a person's entire genome overnight. You know, they, you know, Scully would come back in and go, blah, you know, on something like that. And this is 20 years ago. This is 20 it's, years it's, ago. It was, that was when they spent $3 billion sequencing the human yeah, genome and it I, took them 20 years. Exactly. Now, you can actually, maybe not exactly overnight, but you can get a whole genome done in a couple of days. So actually, that peeve has now become unpeeved. Duncan Forgan tweeted at Naked Scientist and said it, it really gets his goat when spaceships make whooshing noises in a vacuum. Dave Krupp says things making noises when they blow up in space. He cites some examples. Always good to have evidence. He says Star Wars is particularly bad, but silent running is good. And Donald Brannigan says how quickly a car will explode following a Hollywood car chase. Seems to be a universal phenomenon. Cars have to blow up on impact, which doesn't actually, they're designed not to do that. I think when you talk about the sounds in space, it maybe isn't quite as bad as people think because although we think of space as a vacuum, it's not a perfect vacuum. There is gas out there in space. So there is something actually to carry sound waves through space. So I forgive the films that do that. Things would certainly sound very quiet, but you know, they, they can just turn the volume up, can't they? They sure can. But what are the movie mistakes that you have spotted? Do tell us. Meanwhile, here's our first question. And it's one for you, Andrew. Hi, my name is Jane Madden, and I'm calling from Toronto, Nova Scotia, Canada. When scientists talk about neutron stars, they talk about how much a thimbleful of the material that makes up a neutron star would weigh if you had one here on the surface of the Earth. What I would like to know is what would actually happen if you had a thimble's worth of neutron star material here. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> it's not advisable to bring a thimble full of neutron star here. Neutron stars are a gift, really. I mean, they are just the weirdest things out there in space or amongst the weirdest things. Something like uh, two times the mass of our own sun, and yet it's concentrated into a tiny, tiny region about 20 kilometres across. And for comparison, you know, the size of the, the sun itself is more like a million kilometres across. So you're cramming a huge amount of stuff into a tiny amount of space, almost getting to towards sort of black hole type proportions. And why are they called neutron stars? They're called neutron stars because when you do that, the, the thing that actually happens is that you cram all of the electrons, which are the negatively charged particles, into the protons. And that actually turns them into neutrons because you combine negatively and positively charged particles and you end up with only neutrons left over. Um, and in fact, that's part of the reason why you would never want to take a thimble full of this material here to Earth. Um, a, a number of things would happen. First of all, um, to, to get that much stuff in that smaller space, you need to compress it down. And, and that's held together by the immense gravity on a neutron star. But if you take just a thimbleful of it, that gravity's gone. And essentially, this thing is just going to spring apart really fast. And you're talking about a sort of Mount Everest or perhaps several Mount Everests were From one thimble. thimble from from one, one thimble, which is why we always talk about the thimblefuls, of course, because it's a great statistic. An entire Mount Everest packed into a thimble. But it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to try and spring apart to be the size of Mount Everest. So that's, that's not great to start with. But even worse than that, even if you survived that happening, then uh, you have all of these neutrons. And neutrons on their own are not actually stable particles. They're going to try and decay back down to the protons and electrons, which most of them were formed from in the first place. 
And that process of nuclear decay is not pretty either. It's going to release a huge amount of energy. I tried doing a bit of an estimate of this. It does depend a bit on the exact assumptions you make. But um, I think it's something like uh, one trillion H-bomb explosions. That much energy is going to be released over the space of a few minutes as all of these neutrons turn back into to protons and electrons. That could give even a photon torpedo a run for its money, couldn't it, it, it in, in Star it's, Trek? It certainly could. And if you, if you bear in mind, that's a sort of factor of 10. No, it's even bigger than that. It's probably a factor of 10,000 times more energy than was involved in the collision with an asteroid that we think killed the dinosaurs. You get the sense of just the enormous amounts of energy that would be released by doing this. So please, please, please don't do it. Now, talking of huge amounts of energy, Kane Hopkins has got this one for you, Giles. Is it better to eat high-calorie food like a cake or a pack of biscuits all at once or spread out over a few days? So should you pace yourself or just binge? So this is obviously the Christmas question, right? I think we got to think about all calories are equal from a physics point of view. I know I'm surrounded by physicists, but from a physics point of view, the problem is how you actually get at each of those different calories. If you actually eat all of a packet of Oreos or something like that in one go, the chances of you having the chance to try and burn it off is obviously small in in one day. Whereas if you divide that exact same pack of Oreos, assuming you don't eat a pack of Oreos every day, of course, and divide it out over seven days, then you have a greater chance of burning that bulk of energy off. So it doesn't make a difference if you access all the calories, but it does make a difference because you obviously have more chance to burn it off. Kirsten? Is it true that the time of the day when you eat it matters at all? Yes, that is actually going to be true as well, because as you know, you know, we evolved in day and night. And the thing about being alive is we our brain actually tries to predict the things that are going to happen, including when you're likely to eat and when you're likely not to eat. And because we have evolved to, you know, with no electric lights to actually eat when it's light and sleep when it's dark, we are most metabolically active in the daytime rather than in the nighttime. So like I said, all calories are, are equal, but clearly you're going to be burning slightly more of it if you're more metabolically active. Would you absorb all of the calories if i if i did eat an entire packet of biscuits in one go are they all going to get absorbed or is my gut going to say i just can't cope with all of that and assuming i don't throw up is it just going to waste some of those calories Mm. no i think if you're eating something like a chocolate biscuit and which is going to be highly refined um carbohydrates you are going to absorb it all and it's the stuff that you don't burn immediately is going to be converted to fat so don't do that then (laughs) <laughs> so that's Christmas, my Christmas out Christmas then. comes but once a year <laughs> just as well isn't it Giles thanks very much now Roger we've actually had a number of people who've, who've sent us the question we're going to ask you in recent times so everyone who sent this question in this is for you if your eye was a camera how many megapixels would it have what is the actual resolution of an eye or both eyes together well the first thing to say here is that the human eye and the camera see things very differently. The eye's got about 160 million rods and cones, which are the light-sensitive elements in the retina, but they're not spread evenly. And the central part of the retina, which is known as the the macula, which is the bit we look with when we're looking at something, and we want to see something as clearly as possible, here the cones are packed in very tightly, and they give the eye its best resolving power, and they also provide it with colour vision. This area of very accurate sight only accounts for about two degrees of our whole visual field. 
it's, it's kind of interesting, you, if I understand what you're saying correctly, that actually our, the resolution of our eye is, is tailing off into our peripheral vision. And yet the experience of looking at things, I don't really feel like everything's sort of fuzzy on the edges of my vision. I feel like I can just see things. So how do those things fit together? Well, that's because you've always seen like that. But, <laughs> you but don't the, know any better. <laughs> the, the digital camera doesn't have any of that sophistication. It sees equally sharply at every point on the sensor or the film, whichever it may be, at the periphery and in the centre. If it were to see as well as we see with our macular vision, our central vision, we wouldn't be talking about millions of pixels. We would be talking about billions of pixels. Charles? But, you know, we, our eyes are always scanning. So whenever we're actually looking, we're only looking at a very, very tiny uh, um, um, portion of it. So what we're actually seeing is, is really a, a result of our eyes scanning yes. the entire time. You're absolutely right. We're scanning all the time, and the brain is filtering out the scanning, so everything appears to be still. And more than that, we can actually see in three dimensions because we happen to have a pair of eyes at the front of our heads looking forward and getting two slightly different images which the brain, once again, can compare, put together, and allow us to appreciate distance and depth. In other words, see in 3D. I, th I suppose the main consideration here is that when you take a digital picture, that is literally a snapshot in time, whereas our eyes, there's about a million nerve fibres in each optic nerve feeding a train of information in through a series of relay stations and onto the back of the brain where we decode what we see. And actually there's an enormous amount of processing going on in what's being fed to our consciousness that we are totally unaware of. And so the visual world we live in is a complete creation, complete artifice made up for us by the way our brain works. And what I call, for instance, blue may not be what Kirsten calls blue or red at all. It's just someone's told me that this neurological experience that I call blue happens to look blue to me but that might be seen by Kirsten's brain as a completely different experience but we can't compare we can never find out thank you Roger now Kirsten um talking of of light actually this is highly appropriate because we've got this question from Ronald I'm just wondering is it possible to slow light down? What is the speed of light? First well, of all? light travels at the speed of 7.5 times around the Earth in just a second. So that's really very fast. And that is the speed at which light travels. Why? Well, light is made of a unit of energy called the photon. And the photon has energy, it has a momentum, but it doesn't have mass. And physics tells us that an object without mass travels at the speed of light. So that's true for a photon. That's also true for gravitational waves, for for instance. But it can take longer for light to travel a given distance. So how can that be if it always travels at the speed of light? Well, in a simplified picture, you can imagine that light that is traveling at the speed of light hits an atom where it gets absorbed, then it takes a while for it to get re-emitted, then it travels at the speed of light again until it hits the next atom and so on and so forth. That is why it can take longer for light to travel through a medium like water, for instance, as opposed to traveling through Because it does, does physically slow down when it goes from one medium into a more optically dense medium, doesn't it? Like glass, like water. And when you say optically dense, that is exactly what the refractive index means. So um, the factor by which light slows down when it, for instance, goes through water um, is the factor which we call refractive index. So, for instance, water has a refractive index of 1.3, which means the water is 1.3 times faster when it travels through vacuum compared to water. So the bottom line is that you can slow light down and it does 
all the time speed up and slow down when it goes from one medium into another medium and that's why it bends and refracts and that's why when you look over your toaster at the wall behind your toaster when you're making your toast in the morning the wall looks wavy and wiggly because the light is bouncing off the wall and speeding up slowing down and bending even though it is still traveling at the speed of light and if you want to measure that there's actually a simple experiment that you can do with your christmas chocolate if you've got some left over it is you put it into a microwave and because microwaves are also traveling at the speed of light and you know the frequency at which your microwave operates you can look at the two points where your chocolate melts and measure the distance between them and if you google microwave and speed of light then you'll pro probably find the detailed instructions on how to do on that how to do in fact you could go to nakedscientist.com/kitchenscience because we have put the <laughs> <laughs> the worked experiment of how you measure the speed of light with your microwave, and we did it by buttering lots of bread and getting melted patches of, of butter. And uh. because the microwaves, the wavelength of a microwave in an oven is about 12 and a half centimetres or so, so you get, uh, you get melting every time there's a peak or trough on the waves, and that's every six centimetres. So you can actually work out the speed of light because C, speed of light equals F, the frequency, times lambda, the wavelength, and you can look on the back of the microwave and it will tell you the frequency of a microwave is 2.45 gigahertz. Charles. Well, this sounds like a lot more fun than playing with a puzzle after you finish your turkey. I think this sounds like a, uh, we should we should have that in our Christmas dinner this year. Thank you for that. A few pet movie peeves coming in. Phil Ray says, uh, why does a power surge always have to make all the fuse boxes explode? Quite like that one. Uh, Paul James says, it's not strictly science, but characters who are magically able to hack passwords just by thinking a bit. Uh, and Khalil Thurloway, who uh, was actually previously a member of the Naked Scientists, has said, um, uh, filling the gaps in dinosaur DNA in Jurassic Park with frog code. I mean, why? Use a crocodile or a bird. They're closer living relatives. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. And uh, we're answering your science questions this week. With me are Roger Buckley. He is an expert on how the eye works. Andrew Ponson is a cosmologist, theoretical physicist. Kirsten Gopfrick is a DNA expert. She does DNA origami. She makes molecules out of other molecules and does interesting things with them. And Giles Yeo works on genetics of food intake and how the brain actually works out how much you should or shouldn't eat. Now, Andrew, question for you. And this is a stellar one. Hi, my name is Alan. I'm calling from Canada. My question is, if black holes are evaporating due to Hawking radiation, will they eventually become small enough that they are no longer a black hole and become a star again? Thank you. Please tell us, Andrew, first of all, what is Hawking radiation? Well, Hawking radiation is really one of these breakthroughs. It happened in the mid-1970s, named after Stephen Hawking, of course, and it was a breakthrough in our understanding of the universe because, according to Einstein's famous theory of general relativity, which is our best understanding of the way that gravity works, it's possible to cram so much stuff into such a tiny space that nothing can get out at all from that region of space. It's just trapped in there by the sheer strength of gravity. And that's what we call a, a black hole. Um, what Hawking radiation is all about is showing that actually when you combine that uh, theory of general relativity with the other sort of major theory of the 20th century, which is quantum mechanics, which is all about the way that very tiny uh, bits of matter behave in the universe, you get a really remarkable result, which is that actually, very, very slowly, things can trickle back out of a black hole. And we call that trickle of stuff coming back out of a black hole Hawking radiation. And so 
with this question saying, can, can a black hole start shining? In a sense, what Hawking radiation is saying, it already is shining. It's just shining so very, very faintly that we can't really see it. But one of the interesting predictions of Hawking radiation is the rate at which uh, stuff sort of drifts back out of, of a black hole. In other words, the rate at which it's shining increases as a black hole gets less massive. So you can imagine what happens is if you leave a black hole for long enough, very slowly there's this trickle of stuff coming out. So slowly it's losing its mass. It's just seeping away into the universe. It gets smaller and smaller. And as the black hole gets smaller and smaller, of course, the brightness, the rate at which all of this stuff is coming out, is going up. And so actually it gets brighter and brighter as time goes on. Now, for this to really happen, you need to leave the black hole well alone. If you just chuck a bit of extra stuff in the black hole, of course, you'll easily cancel this out. So you need to take a black hole, isolate it for many, many times the age of the universe. In fact, something like 10 to the 53 times the age of the universe. It's not uh, going to happen anytime soon, then. <laughs> it's not happening anytime soon. Uh, but then eventually you will see it. You will literally see it light up. And in the last 0.1 seconds of its life, it will actually pretty much explode because this process of, of stuff leaking out and generating energy becomes so efficient, it explodes with something like a, a million H-bombs. We, we're measuring everything in H-bombs, don't we? <laughs> this, this will be something like a million H-bombs in the last... Only a million. Not, so <laughs> the a, neutron yeah, star uh, thimble has, uh, uh, can, can knock this into next week then. That's absolutely right. In astronomical terms, this is a tiny, tiny amount of energy, but still, it's a million H-bombs in the last tenth of a second of the life of a black hole. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Ed Wilson on Twitter, at Naked Scientist, is tweeted into... He's actually thinking about the practicalities, going back to the neutron star, of getting the thimbleful of, of said neutron star material to Earth and says, well, that's going to take a huge amount of energy in and of itself. So you know, that's another tricky aspect to that. Yeah, and you, and you would also need to make a very, very well-reinforced thimble. You know, you go and <laughs> s- <laughs> scoop, scoop this thing up and then somehow you have to actually keep it together until you get it to Earth in order to destroy the Earth. It would be the worst Bond movie ever. <laughs> I was wondering, can you actually actually measure this? Do we have any chance of observing the black holes uh, radiating? It would be extremely hard to observe an actual black hole radiating for the reason that real black holes in the universe, and they do exist, but, but the real ones tend to be surrounded by gas and dust and stars and, and, and things that will be putting out radiation much, much, much faster than this tiny trickle. But people are trying to create in laboratory sort of analogues to black holes where, where they make very small systems which, which behave in a very similar way to black holes. And in that context, people have actually seen this behaviour. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Giles, uh, talking of black holes and where food goes and where energy disappears off to, uh, Dirk wants to know what foods are actually good for you? I think all foods are good for you at the right amount is the most unfashionable answer in the whole world. That right amount might be zero. That right amount. In the case uh, of some junk food, I think. Very little of it is actually going to be zero. I think you can probably get a little bit of benefit. It's not very good for you, is it? But it's not a food. That is true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Clearly. Clearly. (laughs) Clearly. But stuff that's not going to kill you, everything is good for you at, at the right amount. So I think the question probably is if we consider good food something you can eat as much of as uh, as possible without it killing you if we go for that as good food um i think a lot of fruit are going to be are clearly going to be good for you i mean stuff in the mediterranean diet so foods that are actually are um 
eaten Isn't that World Heritage UNESCO recognised as a phenomenon, the, the Mediterranean diet, isn't it, I think? I, do you know what? A lot of the things I had heard was anecdotal previously until I, I sat at a meeting just a couple of weeks ago and I saw some really compelling data about the benefits of a Mediterranean diet. So, so this was a study which, which I saw in Spain. Now, this, this is the caveat. It was actually done in Spain, so people well, tend to have a Mediterranean in Spain. No, 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 but they tend to eat a Mediterranean diet anyway. Now, Mediterranean diet, just for people, people out there, our stuff is going to be high in whole grains, um, a lot of extra virgin olive oil, um, fish, lower in dairy products and lower in meat. Okay, so a, a kind of like a typically uh, a Spanish type, type type of meal. And if you actually compare that, so it, they took people who were at risk of dying of a heart attack and getting type 2 diabetes. So between so obese people between 50 and 75, put a few thousand of them on a Mediterranean diet and put a few thousand of them on an American Heart Foundation low-fat diet just, just all the way across the board. And the people on the Mediterranean diet who were not restricting their food intake did better. The caveat is that it's in Spain. I don't know how applicable it can be in Texas or for that matter in Cambridgeshire, where fish is nearly impossible to get. But the Mediterranean diet seems to be good for you. So you would say rather than going for one foodstuff specifically and in particular and exclusively, actually the real good for you foodstuff is the mixed diet that the Mediterranean diet represents. Undoubtedly. I think I think it's stuff which just takes a little longer to digest, high in polyunsaturated fats. That's what you really, really need. So not single individual food groups. Charles, thank you very much. Uh, going back to movie peeves, there's some quite interesting observations here. Uh, Catherine Brown has tweeted at Naked Scientist, and she says Rachel McAdams' nail varnish in Doctor Strange. Now, she's a surgeon, she's in her scrubs, and she has nail varnish on. This is not acceptable in a hospital. Um, and then also Catherine W., another Catherine, says uh, the, the Lion King, it shows leafcutter ants, which are only found in the Americas, they're not in Africa. So she's interested in insects. But then she follows on and says, why is it that the main insect characters in films and cartoons that star social insects, like the Ant-Man, they're all portrayed as male. But in real life, actually, the characters, they, those insects would be female. Roger, here's a question for you. It's from Coratina, who says, what is better for our eyes when we are short-sighted wearing contact lenses or wearing glasses well short-sighted people um, usually see better with contact lenses than with glasses and the reason is that there's no frame in the way if you have an occupation which requires the use of optical instruments like a microscope in my case the operating microscope for example it's much easier to get close to where you need to be if you're wearing contact lenses rather than glasses. And the other thing is, if you're short-sighted, the contact lenses will produce a slightly larger image on the retina, so you will actually see better. But against that, you have to bear in mind that glasses never did any eye any damage, whereas contact lenses can. They can cause infection, particularly if they're worn overnight. You're 20 times more likely to develop a corneal infection if you wear your lenses overnight than if you take them out every day. Now, if, if I go around struggling and I don't create my vision because of vanity or whatever reason, are there any consequences apart from obviously walking into walls and having car accidents? Those are the main ones, probably. I mean, we're talking now about adults. In children, it may be different. There may be reasons why children have got to wear glasses to correct their sight. But in adults, with their sight established, you're not going to damage your eyes if you don't wear your glasses. You could wear out-of-date prescription. You could even wear someone else's glasses. You wouldn't see very well, 
but it's not going to cause any damage. Charles has just waved his hand. Are you wearing someone else's glasses? I, I'm not wearing someone. I, I, because of vanity, because, you know, uh, I, how I look, I don't wear glasses. But no, my, my question is, the short-sightedness, is it a reversible at all without laser surgery? I mean, I mean, does it go away? Or once you've actually established your eyesight, that's what it is? Uh, yes, in, in a word. It's all to do with the shape of the cornea, but more usually with the total length of the eyeball. If the eyeball is too long, you're short-sighted, and there's nothing you can do to shorten it. It's because the, the light is falling in front of the retina rather than on the retina, and then it's passing through its focal point and spreading out again, so you get a blurred image. You're not seeing spots of light, you're seeing bigger blobs of light, exactly so things look right. blurry. Where do you stand on this whole idea of reading in the dark? Because people used to say to me when I was a kiddie, oh, don't read in the dark in poor light, that will strain your eyes. Is that true? I don't think there's any real evidence of that. The only thing I would say is that the modern lifestyle, which involves reading and uh, using tablets and telephones and gadgets, is producing a race of short-sighted people. It's it's an epidemic. It is the way we we don't go out and and play games in in the open air. We uh, watch television. If you see children walking in the street, they're very often their nose is almost on the telephone or the pad, whatever it may be. And this is causing them to accommodate grossly um, much more than is necessary. So um, another, adapt their vision for, for close work. Yes. Charles? I didn't know this. So in other words, like during development, obviously you have brain plasticity, you mm. know how everything is actually wiring themselves up. This mm. is also true for your eyesight. You need, to, you need to develop your eyesight to actually get to 2026 vision. Yeah. The visual system, when the child is born, is really quite primitive. But also the eye is very small. It's got to grow. What you don't want it to do is to grow too much, become too long, and therefore short-sighted. So this is why it's um, better for children to be outside playing, kicking a football around, than it is to be concentrating on something just a few inches from their nose. And last one, Roger, very quickly. Laser surgery, where do you stand on that? Good I thing, think, bad I, thing? I think if it's the uh, cases are very carefully chosen by experts... It can be very useful, and it does have certain medical uses. For example, if one eye is very different from the other, they can be evened out. But for purely cosmetic purposes, I have my doubts. Roger, thank you very much. Now, Kirsten, uh, here is one for you, and it's for Nandu. How big does a solar panel have to be to charge my phone? Well, I guess this depends on where you are. I brought with me my phone charger because I think we can assume that, you know, we want to f charge our phone as fast as we can do with this thing which plugs into the socket on a wall. So, Chris, can you can you read off the output? It says on here which power output this can give I reckon, us. I reckon I need glasses, like <laughs> laser surgery or something mm -hmm. to see the... Oh, dear. Um, it's really, really indistinct. <laughs> Okay, good that uh, I did it this. It says 1,500 milliamp at 5 volt DC. In, in I need, almost needed the Hubble Space Telescope to see that. <laughs> it was nearly as small as George and Mills' mince pie that we got before the program. <laughs> 5 volt, um, 1.5 ampere. That, if you multiply the two values, that gives you the power output, which is 7.5 watts. So if we want a solar cell to produce 7.5 watts, how large would it have to be? Well, 
The best solar panels that have been made on sort of a laboratory scale had efficiencies of up to 46%. So that's pretty good. However, the ones you'd put on your roof, they typically have efficiencies of about 15%. So what does that mean? 15% of the energy that comes from the sun is actually converted into electricity. And in sort of the areas in, in northern Europe, um, we can assume that about a thousand watts per square meter of sunlight hit the earth. So so a thousand watts per square meter, 15 percent, that means 150 watts per square meter. So we don't quite need 150 watts to charge a smartphone. We said we need 7.5 watts. That means we don't need a full square meter to charge our phone. About the size of an A4 paper would be enough. There you go. So that seems eminently doable. Andrew? Although presumably that would be at midday uh, in full sun when it's cloudy or, you know, dusk or something. You're, what about you're, at night time? Yeah. You, you exactly got the, <laughs> got the point there. I mean, there's not always sun. I mean, about 1,500 hours of sunshine is what we get here in the UK, for instance, out of the 8,000 hours. So, yes, that's assuming perfect conditions. So it might not be as practical. However, if you want to make this last vital phone call, you know, it could, it could save your day. And there are these gadgets out there if you're still looking for Christmas presents. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsten. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith, and I'm joined by Roger Buckley, who is an expert on the visual system and eyes, Andrew Ponson, who's a theoretical physicist and cosmologist, Kirsten Gopfrick, who you heard just there, who is an expert on DNA, origami and small things, and Giles Yeo, who is a geneticist who works on how we control what we eat. Andrew, question here from Paul Hicks, who says, if a black hole sucks in matter... Where does that stuff go? Yeah, absolutely. Black holes do suck in matter. Anything that's unlucky enough to fall into the grips of a black hole is never seen again. Um, and uh, we honestly, we don't quite know the answer because black holes are, are still very mysterious things. If you take Einstein's theory of general relativity, which we were discussing a bit earlier on, best theory of gravity we have, if you take that totally at face value, what happens to that stuff after it falls in is it keeps falling down and down and down to a central point where it literally gets crushed into a, a single point, a mathematical point or a singularity. However, it, that doesn't really make sense. We don't really believe that you can crush uh, a, a sort of something that was originally had some extent and was a, a, a normal piece of matter down to literally a single point. Um, and what we think really is going on is at some point... Uh, quantum mechanics, which is the theory of how very small things work, has to come into play. Now, as, as we are mentioning earlier on in this program, um, we, we do have some ideas about how to combine quantum mechanics and general relativity, and it leads to predictions like Hawking radiation that very slowly actually mass finds its way out of a black hole. But we don't really understand the details. When we try and drill down and really understand how does the, the, the stuff that fell in find its way out of a black hole, what would, if you could, could you trace, you know, an individual bit of stuff into a black hole and then back out? It's much more murky. Charles? You know, you say that it's unlikely that a singularity exists as one might imagine it. Then what actually happened? Maybe this is too big a question. Before the Big Bang, I mean, just, just, just before the Big Bang happened, wasn't everything sat in one spot somewhere? 
Well, uh, again, <laughs> the honest answer is we don't know. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of we don't knows in cosmology, although there, there are a lot of ideas. And I mean, one of the prevailing ideas at the moment is that the Big Bang as well, in the way that we think of it as everything sort of exploding out from a point, which again is, is a prediction that's coming from Einstein's general relativity, we now think that probably never really happened. Something very much like it happened um, but uh, it wasn't quite that picture of everything was at a point. Uh, we have ideas like inflation, uh, which replace that idea with something very different. And George the... Osborne had something to say about that. Didn't yeah, he? yeah. It's, as always, we, we always seem to be borrowing names from uh, other things in real life, uh, which doesn't help. But inflation is, a, is an idea about the very early universe, the first tiny fraction of a second of the universe's existence. And it replaces the idea of an actual singularity of things exploding out from a point with uh, a process that we can actually understand uh, and make calculations about in much the same way that we now think a black hole doesn't really have an infinitely dense point at its centre. Thank you, Andrew. Right, we're talking about eating things. Uh, we've got this question for you, Giles, from Pierce. Why does a human or animal get so tired after eating and want to rest? Does one expend a lot of energy while eating? I see that's an interesting question. I think what a lot of people think is, oh, it, as you're eating, all the blood rushes from your head to your stomach in order to begin the digestion process. I'll speak and, for yourself, uh, <laughs> I, I think the reality, that's a myth. That, that, that is a myth. So the reason why you get tired after, that's not a myth. That actually does happen. It's not because of blood rushing from all parts of your body to, to your stomach. But I think the best way we can understand it is, when you have a large mass of food within your gut and gastrointestinal tract, it turns on something called the parasympathetic nervous system. So there's a nervous system, which when you smack your face, ouch, that kind of nervous system. But there's an autonomic nervous system, which governs your unconscious bits of the, of the things that happen. Now, there are two portions to that. There's a sympathetic nervous system, flight or fight. Uh, uh, syndrome. And there is the parasympathetic system, which is actually the feed or breed. Um, take a chill pill, sit I, I down and slow down. I it's called rest and digest. I hadn't heard feed or breed. That's a new one on me, but I like it. The feed, the feed or breed. And so what happens is, as far as we understand it, this large mass of food within, uh, you know, postprandially after you eat, tilts your autonomic nervous system towards the parasympathetic, so therefore causing you to feel tired. Now, the reasons... Why? I mean, like once again, we don't actually know, but evolutionarily, you can you can imagine that you need you need actually some time to sit and actually digest stuff before you can actually get up and run again. I don't know, but that's probably the reason why. Thank you, Giles. Kirsten, there's a question coming from Les in Over as a reaction to the point you were making about light, and what Les says is, you mentioned that light speeds up again when it goes out of, say, a piece of glass and back into the air. He wants to know where does it get the oomph or the energy from to make it speed up again? Well, it doesn't slow down. That's the point. It's always travelling at the speed of light. Light is always travelling at the speed of light. It appears to slow down because of the way it interacts, interacts with um, the atoms and it, 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 does, it does travel slower but it never loses its energy. It gives the energy to the atom and then it travels at the speed of light again. So it never loses energy. Right, so it's it's purely the speed at which you measure it moving. It's its interaction with the matter. It's not surrendering any energy as it does that, and that's why it, it doesn't actually need any energy to speed up again. It's just feeling more drag as it goes through a, a more optically dense thing. The energy remains constant, exactly. Kirsten, thanks very much. Roger, Ellen wants to know which foods you could eat which will keep your eyes healthy. 
There are any. Well, Giles was talking about the Mediterranean diet, and I think that would be a good start. What you need, actually, is not any fatty diet or unusual diet, but a good, balanced diet. And the story of the Mediterranean diet goes back for many years. It was very recently, as recently as last month, shown in a scientific study of 5,000 people that it does protect against macular degeneration, which is a very common cause of loss of clear vision in elderly people. What actually is that, for people who are not in the know? What is macular degeneration? We were talking earlier about the centre of the retina, a very small uh, area which gives the most precise vision and the colour vision. And that's the area which is vulnerable for various reasons. There are different types of macular degeneration, but on the whole they tend to affect old people. We live in an ageing society, and so this condition becomes commoner as time goes by. It doesn't blind you. But it does mean that you can't see clearly. You can certainly get about, but you wouldn't, for example, be able to recognise faces across the road or read a newspaper, except the headlines. And so, apart from eating the Mediterranean diet from an early stage in your life, because that's sort of what your answer presupposes, that I've been doing that for a nice long time and I don't get macular degeneration in the first place. If I know yes. I've got something like that happening, is it too late? Is, it, is, it, is there anything I can do to start eating something that will, will stop that happening? Or is, is there nothing apart from just eating healthily? Well, there is the five-a-day rule, which was introduced some time ago, and that is actually a little portion of the Mediterranean diet. So that's uh, keeping it quite simple. It is shown also in cataract, that's something which also affects old people, that there are certain vitamins that may be helpful, for example, vitamins C and E, and the carotenoids, which include uh, lutein and zeaxanthin, and they occur in dark green leafy vegetables, and so one would certainly encourage that. Uh, And there are certain things that would be discouraged in macular degeneration, and the number one probably is smoking. So don't smoke. Give it up for New Year if you do, I suppose is the answer. Make that your New Year's resolution. Giles, here's a quick one for you, and uh, it's from Will Flatman. Is it true that saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you, or is it a myth? You know what? It depends on who you are. And I think if your genetics allows you, and there are some people out there who are lucky enough, you know, to be able to eat as many eggs as they want, as much cholesterol as they want, and actually have um, no damage done to them at all, then it has got absolutely no harm um, to you at all. Saturated fats, depending once again on your genetics, having too much of it will always make you fat. <laughs> but but if you're susceptible to damage from it, for, for cardiovascular reasons and, and other reasons, then it is going to be bad for you. I mean, this is, this is against the background of now people, you know, are saying, well, fat is actually great for you now. You should be giving up sugar. At some point, it was, you, you know, you need to, fat was very bad for you or sugar is good for you. You got to eat enough of everything. I think one other point to bear in mind that was an epiphany to me is that actually your body makes cholesterol in its own cells. It needs it because it's very important for the integrity of the membranes in our cells. If If you don't actually eat cholesterol, you will just make more in your cells. And, and therefore cutting out cholesterol isn't going to make any difference really to your health. It's the saturated fat that then affects how much cholesterol and other lipids are in your bloodstream because you absorb the fat and then distribute it around your body in your bloodstream. Exactly. So it is going to be down to your biology and how you actually how you actually handle that. If you are able to sustain the kind of diet, then you're going to be fine. If not, then you're not going to be fine. Thanks, Charles. A quick one for you, Andrew. It's from Donald, and he says, because we have no dark matter planets in our solar system, can we assume that dark matter doesn't stick to itself? You'd better explain 
partly what dark matter is? Well, very quickly, the answer is yes. Dark matter is this extra stuff uh, that we seem to need to make sense of the universe. When we look at the way that galaxies, which are collections of hundreds of billions of stars, when we look at the way that they behave, and in particular the way that uh, they're spinning around and things are moving within them, we can see quite clearly that they're spinning too fast um, to be consistent with their only being made out of the stars that we can actually see. Um, And um, what we think is going on is that the gravity that actually causes gravity to spin is being given an extra boost, if you like, by having some extra stuff there that we can't see directly. And, And that's the stuff we call dark matter. At that level, of course, it is a bit made up. It's a sort of made up solution to a problem. But we've then run with that idea and come up with a whole load of predictions for other things in the universe, which then turn out to be correct. So this idea of dark matter does seem to be onto something. On the other hand, we've never been able to really figure out what it is. Nobody has found a bit of dark matter in a laboratory. That's probably to be expected because it seems to be invisible. Um, But that means that its properties, is it sticky, for instance? Uh, It's stuff that that we, we don't really know the answer to. And we need to start thinking about exactly those kind of questions. Kirsten? What do you think? Will we soon know? Are we going to find dark matter at CERN at any point? Well, <laughs> that, that is a, a very big question. Um, I, I think eventually we will find it. But I think right now the prospects for finding it in the near future might not be as great as some people would like to think. And so we do need to look out into the universe to figure out what are its properties? What should we be really looking for? So this kind of argument where you say there aren't planets made out of dark matter, therefore it can't be sticky, is a godsend. It really is because we can start to understand what is making dark matter tick. Thank you, Andrew. Kirsten, here is a question for you. Mike Greenfield, who listened to the programme you produced about alien DNA, in which you said that someone from NASA was claiming we've got meteorites here on Earth from Mars. He wants to know how they got here from Mars and also how do we know they came there from Mars? Yes, we do actually have meteorites here from Mars, even though it is a small fraction of the meteorites we find on Earth. We've found about 60,000 meteorites and only... Just over a hundred of them have come from Mars and we know they have come from Mars because we have Mars rovers which which collected samples from the atmosphere from Mars. And these gases, they have been found enclosed in the meteoroids we have found here on Earth. And they can escape the gravity of Mars by being hit by an asteroid that sort of knocks out a meteoroid from Mars. So something big slams into Mars ejects material off the surface of Mars, which happens to have trapped in it tiny bubbles of Martian atmosphere, delivers the meteorite over time to the Earth. And because we've also got these rovers out there and we know what the Mars atmosphere is made of, we can compare the two and say, well, that must have come from Mars. Precisely. Pretty good. I hope that answers the question for you, Mike. Now, Roger, we've got this one for you from Brooke. What kind of damage can the mascara brush do to your eye? Well, a mascara brush can be harmful in two different ways. First, a slip with the brush when the mascara is being applied can cause a scratch on the surface of the eye, either the white of the eye or the cornea. And whereas that will normally heal very quickly within 24 hours, it could become infected and then that would become an emergency and require urgent treatment. The other way in which mascara uh, may be harmful or the the brush may be harmful is that it uh, may actually be infected. Uh, When you apply it first to the skin 
uh, bacteria will adhere to it. And when it's then put back into the container, they will not only survive, but they will grow. And this was established about 40 years ago by some American workers. So in effect, every time you apply that mascara brush to your lashes, you are reinfecting yourself with your own bacteria. But if they're your own bacteria already, is that bad? Yes, but they have increased in number in the meantime in the container, and so you're, you're putting on a larger concentration of bacteria. And there's an association with the use of, of mascara with infections of the eyelids, blepharitis, styes, and so on are commoner in people who use mascara. Is it worse if I share my mascara with my best friend then? Well, you don't know what, where your best friend's been, do you? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't share contact lenses. You, I, and for the same reason, you wouldn't share mascara brushes, I, I suggest. It's just not healthy. That's a no from him, Kirsten. <laughs> Giles, a quick follow-up uh, on what we were saying about Mediterranean diets and so on. We've had an inquiry whether wine is a crucial part of the Mediterranean diet and therefore enriching your wine intake is beneficial or whether whether just not having wine and having grape juice or something would be beneficial. Mm. So that's interesting. Yes, wine is part of the Mediterranean diet, drunk responsibly and within, within reason. I think what they're saying is a couple of glasses with the meal is part of the Mediterranean diet, and it's red wine we're talking about here, is part of the Mediterranean diet. As far as I understand, you know, studies that have been done comparing red wine to an equivalent amount of grape juice, it is the actual process of converting that those grapes into the wine that provides whatever goodness is, is there. And I think people still don't know exactly what it is in the red wine that is actually beneficial. So we know that it's beneficial. We don't know exactly why. There's something in the process, but don't overdo it. But there does appear to be evidence to support having a glass of wine as part of the Mediterranean diet. Is that, is that what you're saying? That is absolutely correct. Well, that's on my Christmas list then. Thanks very much, Giles. Uh, Kirsten, uh, we've heard from Paul, who I think is also shopping around for a Christmas present. He wants to know if you can test your own DNA with a kit that you could do at home, for example. It depends a bit on why you would want to test your own DNA. Is it that you want to find out about your ancestors? Is it that you want to be a detective and find out about your health or your, your potential risk of getting a certain disease? Or do you really want to get your hands dirty and try your hands as a, as a DNA scientist? DNA is the molecule that stores the information of life and it does that by storing the information in the sequence of the genetic alphabet. So the DNA is made up of bases, A, T, C and G, and the sequence of the, these bases is what stores the information. So the way to obtain the most information from DNA is literally reading the bases, reading the letters of the genetic code, and this is what we call DNA sequencing. And unfortunately, this cannot be done at home yet, even though just two weeks back on the program, we've heard that there are now portable DNA sequences. However, getting one of those for your for yourself is is probably not possible yet. It might be in the future. But there are companies who will allow you, if you collect a swab, to send it to them and they will send you back some information about your genetic makeup. And that's a sort of home kit for the home collection. But what you're saying, Kirsten, is that probably at the moment for the domestic market, the physical reading of DNA sequences is a bit beyond the average person's reach. Even though DNA sequencing has developed at unprecedented speed, it is still something that takes a while and takes, takes probably laboratory equipment. Charles? So those um, home testing kits, however, that you can actually buy, so from 23andMe, from DNA Fit, the interesting thing about those is they give you some interesting pieces of information, certainly genealogy, where you come from, ancestry, that is, that is very, very good. The problem 
it's not in actually generating the pieces of genetic information, which is now robust and cheap. It's actually interpreting it. And I think interpreting it has become a problem because we are now beginning to misunderstand the fundamental difference between risk and prediction. And I think although these are very good in saying broad things, say if you have this versus that, you increase your risk of something. Can you pluck anybody off the street and actually try and predict if this person is going to become fat, is going to you know, breathe better, drink milk? That is more difficult to do. Someone else we had on the program two or three years ago, Anna Middleton from the Wellcome Trust, she made me think because she came and said, well, well look, a lot of people are getting their DNA sequenced and the NHS in England is going to be sequencing 100,000 people imminently. And that means that 100,000 people or more are going to start learning things about their genetic cargo, which immediately tells them a lot about their parents and a lot about their siblings, which neither may wish to know about. They might value that information. They may not want to know that information. But the minute you know something about your own genetic makeup, you know something about your relatives, exactly. which you previously wouldn't have done. That's exactly right. So so and I think there is a whole lot of ethics questions that actually are wrapped up in it, which no one is discussing or not enough, that has been outpaced by the technological ability to actually look at your DNA material, certainly for, co- uh, for, for the price that's now available. Now, changing the subject absolutely completely uh, into outer space, of course, with you, Andrew, Shri Jith wants to know, could we make use of quantum entanglement to find out what actually happens inside a black hole? Now, every question you've had has involved you having to give us a mini physics lesson before you actually start answering the questions. Now, can you tell us what quantum entanglement is so we can then understand the question? Quantum entanglement is one of the most beautiful and bizarre phenomena in all of physics, quite frankly. Um, it comes from this world of quantum physics that we've, we've been discussing quite a lot already on the programme, the physics of the very small. And uh, it, it's this phenomenon where um, seemingly what you do to one tiny little chunk of matter, one, one tiny particle in one place can instantaneously change how another particle in a completely different place is behaving. And when I say instantaneously, bizarrely, I actually mean instantaneously. And we have a kind of idea in physics that nothing can go faster than the speed of light, that there's no way that one part of the universe could influence another part of the universe without uh, there having been time for some light, at least, to get from uh, point A to point B. This seems to break that idea. So it's actually a very sensible question to say, okay, sure, if I drop something into a black hole, I'll never see it again, at least not in the form that I dropped it in. But could I use this bizarre effect of quantum entanglement to find out something about what's happened to it? Is this what they dubbed spooky action at a distance? Yep, it's not just they, it's Einstein that dubbed it spooky action at a distance because he hated it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so weird. It's so cutting against the grain of everything else we know about in physics. Well, Niels Bohr said, if you're not baffled by quantum... You didn't understand it. Absolutely. And I think that that's a very fair way of, of putting it. However, however, what we do know about this uh, phenomenon of quantum entanglement is you cannot actually use it to transmit information faster than the speed of light, which seems to contradict what I just said. So although one chunk of stuff can influence another chunk of stuff at a great distance, seemingly faster than the speed of light. That can't be used to transmit a message. So suppose I gave you one half of my uh, entangled pair of, of, of particles, and you tried to use it to transmit me a message. You shared your quantum entangled mascara with me. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would only share it with you, Chris. 
Um, but uh, so, I'm so, touched. <laughs> suppose we did that. Suppose you try to figure out how can I send Andrew a message. Unfortunately, it turns out that there's actually a theorem, a mathematical theorem, showing you cannot use this effect to send me a message. You, if you can send me a, a beam of light at the same time, then you can kind of boost the amount of information that's, that gets sent. Um, but because the ways that, that one of the pair affects the other is extremely subtle, it can't straightforwardly be used to send a message as you would with, with, say, a beam of light. So if you can't put things in contact with a beam of light, you also can't put them in contact with quantum entanglement. So the answer is no. That's a blow, isn't it? Now, Roger, one for you. Steve has obviously been looking for romance this Christmas season because he's come up with this question. He says, It's been well documented that when one person finds another person attractive, perhaps because they've got some quantum entangled mascara on, uh, this being the case, why don't we become blinded every time we look at someone we find attractive in a well-lit area? If you've had your eyes dilated by an optometrist, it's annoyingly evident how bright everything is. So why is this any different? Why is love not actually really blinding? Well, it's quite true that a number of emotional situations, including sexual attraction, can cause the pupils to dilate. But the effect is temporary, and it's much less than having your pupils dilated by the optometrist. Also, any bright light will quickly reverse the effect, which uh, is not the case if you've had drops. Right. So you do find someone attractive, your eyes do dilate, but that effect is trumped by bright light. Exactly. If you want to see whether someone really does fancy you, what you're saying is you need to go and date them in a dark area. I didn't say that at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a reasonable proposition. Like the one you might get in the dark area if you, if you read the signals correctly. Roger, thank you very much. And thank you also this week to Andrew Ponson, Kirsten Gottfried and Giles Yeo. The producer was Georgia Mills. Now, just before we leave you, I wanted to update you on how our Christmas fundraising appeal is going. We're aiming to raise £50,000 by Christmas, and this is to help support our next year's programming and also to help us to update our website and our app, which are both in dire need of improvement. And at this point, I'd like to cut in with a special thanks to our top donors from the week. In no particular order, they were Todd Abbott, Richard Newmark, Mark Philpott, Christine Price, Bruce Wallace, Nicholas Enns, Joe Rosengarten, Nancy Barnett, Wessam Hassan, Paul Simons, Caleb Burns and Martin Williams. So far, you have very kindly helped us to raise over £4,000, but that does mean we still have some way to go. So to make it easy, we have upgraded our donation system and this means you can now use your local currency and it accepts all major credit cards. So if you appreciate what we do and you'd like to help, we're asking you to please buy us each a virtual beer for Christmas. You can find out details of how to do that at nakedscientist.com support. Thank you very much. Next week we're celebrating the 12 science days of Christmas. So we'll see you then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from us all here at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. Goodbye.